of Titus chapter 1, verses 5, and all the way through the rest of that first chapter, uh, in verse 5, we're told what Titus was sent to do. And uh, he was going to do two things, take care of two matters. The plan was restated, as we've already, we already looked at when we first introduced the book. He was supposed to bring order, to straighten things out, to arrange things in the church, help God's people know what they were supposed to do. And then he was to ordain elders in every city. Uh, and then we talked about the position of, of elder and uh, spoke a little bit about that. Uh, the word is found 69 times in the uh, New Testament. It's used in a couple different ways. And uh, the position revealed. Did I? I know the outline. My, my, um, if my wife doesn't get the outline, I know I'm in trouble. Because uh, she always knows what I'm what I'm speaking about. So either I'm getting senile in my old age, and and that could be that could be the case, or actually I did work things over on the message, so I might have messed it up. So the position revealed was Roman numeral two, and uh, letter A was it speaks of an elder, and uh, an elder is that how you have in your outline? I don't have it right in front of me. So what's that? Okay, see, that's where it's all, it's, it's all, so you know what, the plan restated probably shouldn't have been, uh, uh, um, wow, okay, it is messed up. <laughs> all right, you can just like totally erase that, what, anyway, it does speak, it's the position, re, uh, the position declared, I think that should have been the first, this, the first point rather than the first point I had as the first point, there you go. See, I told you I reworked the message some. That's what happens when you go, you go on vacation, you come back and you rework the message. <laughs> and I already had the outline ready. I think that's what happened. Sorry about that. So that, let's uh, the position re declared or revealed. There you go. Uh, it should be it speaks of an elder, and that speaks uh, to term speaking of or speaking of. Okay. Well, first of all, it's a term speaking of. Age, all right, or it's a term speaking of rank or office, all right. So when you see the word elder in Scripture, it's speaking of age or rank or office. Um, uh, and it's a term that's distinct from deacon, and then it also speaks of bishop, all right. So at least do we finally, we're finally on the, the same, we are on the same page now, <laughs> So for those of you that didn't get that right in the outline, uh, it was because I didn't give it to you right in the outline, and I point put, put I added an extra point, just because because I can do that. All right, so I'm sorry that I messed you up, but there we have it. At least now we are on the same page, and that's where we left off, right? So we are going to pick up today in verses six to nine, where we have the person revealed, the person. Revealed, and we'll get into that in just uh, just a moment. Uh, let's go ahead and read. We'll start in verse six. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, 
that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And he's going to continue on. And verses 10 to 16, don't mistake, are related. We're not going to read them all right now because we're not even going to get through verse 9, probably, as we look at some of this list and the person revealed. Uh, but verses 10 to 16 describe what the pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to be faithful to the Word of God and defend the Word and, uh, and help people understand the truth. And we'll uh, look a little bit more at that uh, here a little bit later. Pray and ask God to help us. Uh, Father, we do need your direction and wisdom tonight. We're thankful for uh, such a book as this uh, that helps us to know what we need to know for our own lives and how we're supposed to live. As we'll see in later chapters, we're thankful, Father, as well, that it helps us understand what the church is all about, um, helps me to understand my role and God's people to understand the role of a pastor or, or the position and what he's supposed to be like. I pray that you would help us to understand better your word and uh, accurately and rightly divide the word of truth. And we will thank you for how you'll help us in this matter and give us wisdom tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone wrote an article about leadership in the church, and he began with these words. He said, Do you think of any greater privilege than to be called the leader in the church of Jesus Christ? The church is his body, his bride, the temple of his spirit, his flock, his army, and his family. Can you think of any greater responsibility than leading his church? That is why God's word has laid before us such challenging requirements for Christian leadership. The standards are rightly high, not only for the sake of the church's vitality, but also for the sake of the leader's vitality. And then he went on to mention passages dealing with leadership qualifications, like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus uh, chapter 1. And he said this, the qualifications spelled out in these passages can be summarized in four words. And I thought it was good. Commitment, conviction, competency, and character. I like that. But it really does give us the idea of what a pastor is supposed to be. Commitment, conviction, competency, and character. And you can find those things throughout in this passage. I thought it was a good thought. Leadership as laid out by God um, does require someone to be true to God. And we began looking at this instruction already given to Titus as he was to find men and ordain them for the various churches in Crete. And Titus needed to know what to look for, and so did the church, and God gave them what they needed. So we're going to look at the person revealed, but before we get there, and this is not in the outline, so don't come and tell me, boy, I messed up again, all right? It's not in the outline, but a couple things I want to mention, a few things need to be said about the list before the list, all right? And the first thing that, uh, that I has really stood out as I've had to study this passage out for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, probably one of the reasons specifically would be uh, the matter of divorce and remarriage, which is a big question that needs to be answered, and pastor needs to know where he stands and where the Bible stands in, this, in the matter of divorce and remarriage, uh, which we're not going to get into great detail in, but um, uh, that. And then as well, uh, other issues found in this passage. Here's one truth that you need to understand. This list has to do with what a man presently is. Not what he's been in the past, um, and not what has happened in his past in his past life. 
Now, you, you say, well, well, Pastor, uh, wait a second. The Bible talks about right in, at the start in verse 6, he's to be the husband of one wife, and that's dealing with divorce. Well, we're going to look at that subject, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there and, uh, and see what God indeed has to say about this matter. And we'll dig into that phrase a little bit later because the interpretations are varied. But uh, a lot of people will say that a person is disqualified dealing with that subject by saying, well, you know what, 20 years ago or whatever it might have been, a man was divorced and therefore he's unfit for the ministry. It's interesting to me that we do it with that one point, but then we come to, um, look at what he says, uh, someone that is given to wine, someone that 20 years ago was a drunk but got but got things right with God. Maybe he was saved, but he got things right with God. Now he's serving the Lord. We don't look at that man and say, you know, 20 years ago he was a drunk. He's not fit for the ministry. Now look, we can't pick and choose the things that we want to pick and choose in, the, in this passage and say, well, it means this in this situation, but it doesn't mean this in another. We can't come to one thing like given to wine or, or someone who was a fighter. Maybe they were, they were someone who got into fist fights as they, when they were a teenager. And that would, if we're going to say that these things go back throughout a man's life, quite honestly, there are very few people that are fit for the ministry. I mean, very, 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 very few. If we go back and we look at someone's past and everything. So this list, we've got to be honest about it. This list is dealing with a man, what a man presently is. And by the way, that helps us understand the interpretation of the husband of one wife. And we'll, again, we'll get to that a little bit later. But, but it deals with what a person presently is. By the way, the same thing would be true with the first, uh, or I'm sorry, the end of verse 6. Having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. We don't look at, at, at a man, he's, in, he's, in his, uh, he's a young man, he's in his 60s. And uh, we don't look at a man like that and say, well, 40 years ago he had kids that were unruly in his home. He's not fit for the ministry. Because the truth is, uh, if we want to follow that standard and say, you just look at the man's entire life and his whole life, if these things are found, he's unfit. Um, I, I, I really question whether, whether we even have enough pastors to pastor the churches in Tennessee. Um, because no one or very few people their entire life haven't had issues with some of these things. So when we deal with this, it's dealing with someone, what a man presently is. We can't pick and choose expiration dates on qualifications. So I'd say this, if a man's previous divorce at any time disqualifies him, then proper interpretation requires that any past failure disqualifies a man. And... Um, and you already know, you say, well, I got an issue with that. All right, we'll, we'll get to it. All right. Uh, and that creates a, a big problem because there are few people could ever claim to have a life free from pa failure in his past. And I'm, I, I'm really thankful that God doesn't say, here's, here's what your life has had to be perfect throughout your life in order for you to be in the ministry because I guess you got a problem with this pastor. And um, you say, what? We're not going there. <clears throat> All right. 
Se- second thing I wanted to mention is this, um, be- because some people then uh, bring up the matter, well, uh, wait a second, no, this isn't the second matter, this is kind of in addition to this. How do we interpret blameless? Because, you know, Pastor, if a man's been divorced, and I know we'll address it a little bit more, you know, he's, he's not blameless. Um, blameless is, again, what a man is right now. And, and the idea is, can someone point the finger at you and say there's something in your life right now that is uh, affecting your ability to minister? And, and, and it makes you, if you would, someone who's worth, uh, that, who is not blameworthy, uh, who's guilty of doing things that are wrong. And I think First Timothy chapter 5 deals with that, where if an elder is accused of things, he's not blameless. Um, and you're to hear out the accusers. There have to, has to be two or three witnesses. The church is to hear it out, and the matter is to be dealt with. All right, so that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. There are requirements, but not all are requirements. <laughs> now, that sounds strange. But look at this one. This is interesting. And, and, and this is something that has been challenging to me as I've studied this out over the years, quite honestly. Look at the end of verse 6. And what does God say that a pastor is supposed to have? All right, faithful children, not accused of right. You see, what in the world is that? All right, well, we'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> I'll get to that. And this is not a message for another time, Brother Beals. We will get to that. All right, just wanted you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, we're going we're gonna to get to that. All right, but here, here's the thing. You, you, you got to understand. You got to think this through, okay? You say, well, all right, he's got to have faithful children, not accused of right. Um, and what do I mean? All our requirements, are, but they're, but not all our requirements. Uh, the first is that we're not to overlook, ignore, or emphasize one quality over another. A pastor is not required to be perfect, all right? But here's the thing. Um, the requirement sometimes is not a requirement. Notice what he says again, having faithful children. So what is the point in making? Does a pastor have to have children? Well, look, if, if we're going to hold to this and say, these are all requirements, then, then get this. A man can't pastor and his children. And a man can't pastor unless he's married. And the truth is that, that to, to say that, actually, there's a lot. Okay, I... I See, I can go rabbit trails here. Um, Here's the point. If a man has them and they're in the home, they're to be in line and they're to be under his authority. And that is the requirement that must always be met, but it doesn't always have to be met. In other words, you don't have to have children in order to pastor. If you have them and they're in the home, they need to be doing that which is right. Um, there's men who have been in ministry. Their kids have done that which is right and have lived right all the way through, maybe even went through college, and then they turned from God later on in life. If you look at that man, kid's 40 years of age. He's, in his, he's a young man. He's 60. Uh, kids, <laughs> we're going to keep emphasizing that. All right. Um, kids are now 40 years of age, and they go bad. They do some things maybe that are wrong. 
So this man's no longer fit for the ministry. No, that's not at all what this passage is talking about. Doesn't go and, and deal with things like that. Um, by the way, look at this and let me ask you something. It says, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful, and what's the next word? Children. So, so get this. So here's a young guy, can't go into the ministry because he hasn't yet gotten, ma- gotten, gotten married. By the way, a lot of pastors won't ha- call a guy. I remember when I was looking as a, as a young man getting out of college who was going to get engaged, wasn't yet engaged, um, but uh, there were pastors who wouldn't even talk with me because I wasn't married. And, um, and I, I understand some of that. By the way, a, a man who's going to be a youth pastor working with teenage girls, there's some things that you would really be concerned about if he's fresh, fresh out of college. I, I get that. I understand. There are some times where it would be best in that situation. But here's the thing. So he can't, get, he can't go into the ministry according to that because, well, he's not married. That's not what the passage is talking about. So husband of one wife. If he has one, that's what he needs to be, all right? Then we get to the matter of, of children. What does this say, though? Does it say child? So here's a guy. He goes and he gets married. Woo, now I can pass. No, you can't. You don't have kids yet. All right. So his wife is expecting. Woo, can go into the ministry now. No. Because what does it say? Children. Has to have at least two. And then here's the question to ask yourself. So then, he has two kids. Woo, I can go into the ministry now. Uh, Kids grow up. It's been in the ministry for years. They go to college. But they're no longer in the home. So is he no longer fit? There's a lot of things about this, this passage that that sometimes it seems like fundamentalists want to stick a finger in and say, you have and, um, and we got to be very careful. I'm not suggesting we take lightly this list, nor that we ignore it, but we need to take an honest look at it, and we have to ask ourselves the question, what did God expect? And here's the thing. If he has children, whether that's, that's a child or whether he has a number of children, those children in the home need to be doing that which is right. Um, uh, by the way, look, look at what it says here in that first phrase. If any be bl- blameless, and then it was, what does it say? The husband of uh, the husband of one wife. You know, in a conversation with a preacher about divorce and remarriage, I was told that the phrase husband of one wife means just that. So his view was this. If, if my wife passed away, Serious. I found I found a young lady who's 60 or something to that effect. And and I get married again, I would be disqualified from the ministry. I am not the husband of one wife. It's one in a lifetime according to him, which actually is not in the text, so you can't find it there. All right, so that was all introductory. That's why I said we're not going to get very far. So, but it's important that we understand these things because we need to come to this passage and we need to make an honest assessment and say, all right, what does God expect? All right, let's get to our list then and let's begin uh, to walk through it. Number one, he's to be what? 
verses, verse 6 and verse 7. We're told this twice. All right, he's to be blameless. Found twice in these verses, it reminds us the importance of a person's testimony. Now, the idea of blameless is that nothing can be laid to his charge or he's irreproachable. Now, now that doesn't mean the accusations won't be made. And I told you we, could do, we should do this, so let's take a moment and look at it real quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And again, we're not going to spend a ton of time on all these things, all right? We will move more quickly after we get through a few that are, are some kind of sticklers, and we have to explain them. But in verse uh, 17 of this passage, he talks about elders that rule well, and they're to be wor- counted worthy of du- double honor. And then in verse 19, he says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, them that sin... Rebuke before all that others also may fear. So, here's the idea. Blameless does not mean that people don't make accusations. And here's the reason why. A pastor is is in a position where there are times where he may need to rebuke someone, where church discipline may need to take place. And I'll tell you something, it, it wouldn't be hard at all for an accusation to be made about the pastor during a time like that. Why is that? Because people get bent out of shape when you try to do that which is right and that which is biblical. There are uh, people who uh, may may receive counsel, and uh, and uh, they're upset with the counsel that they have been given. I mean, there's all sorts of situations where people, where pastors have been accused of things, and some have been completely innocent. It is the duty of the church to hear it out and to see if it's right or wrong. Sometimes it should be just dismissed summarily because because someone's just bent out of shape and they're making an accusation and they have no foundation and no basis for it. At other times, it needs to be heard out in the mouth of two or three witnesses. It needs to be established. And listen, if the man is guilty, as we said last week, he should be punished. He should, it should be made known before God's people because he is before God's people and he has sinned before God. Before God. And, uh, and others need to fear, and it's right. So blameless does not mean that no one can ever say anything bad about a pastor, but it does mean this, that he's irreproachable, that there is nothing they can stick a finger on and say, this man has done this, and here's evidence of such. Um, so uh, that's what God tells us. We don't ignore accusations. We take them very seriously, we check into them. We make sure there's substantial proof of any wrongdoing. And if there isn't, then we have to, then we have to think the best as love wants us to do. But blameless means that the accusations have no foundation, not that they can't be made. By the way, if you look at this, he said, if any be blameless, and then he said in verse 7, what again? He repeats the idea, for a bishop must be blameless. Now notice how it's described after that. What's the next phrase? As a steward of God. So here's the picture he gives us, and this helps us understand blameless a little bit more. He says, look, um, he's as God's steward. He's as one who has been entrusted with, with the, the, not the finances, but he's been entrusted with God's work. And so he needs to be blameless in this sense, just like a steward needs to be blameless. Let's say you had someone taking care of the finances in your home. I know you don't do that, but in this society, they would have understood this very clearly. There were people who were stewards. They were responsible. So look, let's say that in your home, um, 
the, the steward comes to you, the person takes care of your finances, and they say, or your wife, you're going to be in trouble, or your husband, or something like that. But they, they say, um, all right, look, here, here's the books. Take a look at the finances, everything. And, um, and let's just say, as you're looking at the finances, you see that money was paid out for, money was paid out for mowing. But, but you have this, like, this minute piece of grass that the truth of the matter is you know it hasn't, you know, um, you just take a, a scissors and you go out and you cut the grass, you know. And yet the charge was like $600 or something for the month. And you don't see any check, but you just see 600 taken out of the account. Would any of you be concerned about that? Yeah, he's gone, all right? Well, why? Because you can't see the money that was actually, or you can't find a check that was canceled that went to a certain person where you could go and check and make sure that this guy really did what it's talked about. And because the, there's, it just doesn't balance. All right, so someone who's a steward has to be responsible for that. Blameless is it, in the sense then, and in this, it, the meaning of this word, is that look? There, there aren't, there aren't things in his ministry and in his life that you can look at and say, well, those two just don't add up. There's a problem here, and it's evident that there's a problem here, and we can prove that there is a problem here. Blameless uh, carries this idea that someone has been responsible. They're faithful or trustworthy, and um, and if he, if there are uh, questionable activities in any sense. Uh, the pastor is just staying as far away from those sins as, as is possible. That's his testimony. Um, and, and, you know, when someone is irresponsible, it hurts the cause of Christ, even if they're not fundamental people. You remember the Jim Baker fiasco? Do you, do you know that, honestly, even fundamental churches were affected by, um, by, his, by, his, <laughs> by that charlatan? Stealing money from people so he can have an air-conditioned doghouse and other things that happened. Um, that he admitted to his failure in. So why? Because the man wasn't blameless. There were things in his life and in his ac- actions that said, I am doing wrong. And that affects the whole cause of Christ. It's no wonder that God says he needs to be blameless. Then we see number two. And, and yes, here we open the can of worms. Um, we have the, the statement, the, this would be the husband of one wife. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, that statement has more written about it than any other in, these, in the passages, whether it's 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1. And since that's the case, we've got to be careful that we don't impose our interpretation as the only right answer and the final answer and everything. In other words, this is not a matter we should separate over disagreement about. Never should. Um, let, let me tell you why when you talk about divorce and remarriage, you should never separate over disagreement in, in that area because it was debated in Deuteronomy, and that's why God put some things in the law in regard to it. It was debated in the time of Jesus Christ thousands of years after the law was originally written, still being debated by Jews, so much so that they brought a woman taken in adultery and said she should be stoned, and they asked Jesus what he thought should happen. Um, And then it's been a debate ever since for the last 2,000 years of church history. You can talk to people, like I said, 
here's a pastor who says one wife means one in his entire life. If he if he's had one wife and and she dies, he hasn't done anything wrong, and he remarries, he's not fit for the ministry anymore. It's amazing the different views that people have in regard to this matter, and it's not something to separate over. The issue of divorce and remarriage has been a matter of contention for thousands of years, and it's still hotly debated by conservatives amongst one another. So we need to be careful. So don't let this issue be a cause for which to separate from a fellow believer. It shouldn't. Honest discussion and debate can be had, uh, but it shouldn't change fellowship. It's not that, that, uh, that kind of issue. Here's the truth. This phrase is made up of three words in the language. Does anyone know what they are? One of the words is gune. It's Greek. Gune. I never forgot what the one one of the few words in Greek class that I never forgot because gune means woman. And somehow it just stood out to me. It was just something I'll never forget that one. And so so you're a gune. <laughs> Doesn't sound good, does it? Yeah, okay. It's one of the reasons I didn't forget it, you know? My my wife's a gune. See, that is, I always picked up on words like that. Weirdo. All right. So that's one other word. The, the, the other, another word is one. It's profound. Okay. All right. So, so the word gune or woman or, by the way, wife. Used interchangeably throughout scripture, woman or wife. One. And then it's man or husband. Now. You say, well, why are you telling me that deals with both woman and wife and man and hu- man or husband? Because in Scripture, the context determines how those words are translated. And uh, the only thing that tells you how they're supposed to be translated is the context in which they are in. You, you can't just, here we go, willy-nilly throw, throw this definition out in this case. You have to come to the context and determine how it's used. So, Three words to make it up. This passage is either saying one wife, husband, or one woman, man. You say, well, there are other options. Okay. But in, in essence, that's basically what it's saying. So either it means a one wife husband, which you say means they can't be divorced. Actually, that isn't exactly true. Okay, let, let me let me just bring out this point real quick. If a man's been married and he's been divorced and he didn't remarry, has he been a, a one-wife husband? Yes or no? Yes. Maybe a man's been in the ministry, he hasn't been in the ministry, and um, and his wife runs off with a man, abandons him. She files for divorce. He's been divorced. Is he a one husband, a one wife husband? He has been. So I find that offensive, and that's not a fundamentalist view. I love when people do that. I'm just telling you. 
what is the, the proper understanding, right? no matter what interpretation you give. Do you know that these three words are not ever used in the discussion of divorce or remarriage anywhere in Scripture? These three words are found only in three places in the Bible. Okay? Two are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when God talks about a pastor who's supposed to be a one-woman man or a one-wife husband. It's found when it talks about deacons about five verses later when it says that a, a deacon is supposed to be a one-woman man or a one-wife husband, and it speaks in Titus chapter 1, and it's found nowhere else. Those three words are never used in combination anywhere in talking about divorce or remarriage. And yet, and yet, most fundamentalists will tell you that this is dealing with divorce and remarriage. But it's never used in Scripture anywhere other than these three places. And these three places should determine the interpretation that is given to those three words in Scripture. You say, why are you spending so much time on it? Because writers spend so much time on this. And you need to understand. So you say, Pastor, you still haven't given us point number two. What is it? You already wrote in the husband or one wife. But I'm going to give you the three words as they should properly be interpreted. One woman man. One woman man. Again, it can only be, it can really basically be understood in this. One, there is no debate about that. One woman, man, or one wife, husband. Um, the proper interpretation is determined in a lot of ways by grammar, okay, by context, and by proper use. The context favors one woman, man, and I know fundamentalists get mad at me over this, but it's the truth. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why. First of all, the qualifications deal with what a man is right now. It doesn't say he was a drunkard in his past. It says he's a drunk. He, he's a drunkard. He's, he's, he's a drinker. He's greedy. He is one woman man deals with what the man is right now, not what happened 30 years in his past. He's a one-woman man. And by the way, that, that can be proved. Do you know there are some pastors that have no business being in the ministry, not because they've been divorced, but because they're not one-woman men? You say, what do you mean by that? They're polygamous. Well, that would include polygamous, okay? But because they have wandering eyes. They're they're uh, acting uh, in they they have loves other than their their wife, and so the proper interpretation understanding is one woman man because it deals with what a person is right now. And and First Timothy three, God says a man desiring the office of the bishop is a, is desiring a good thing. Men are encouraged to desire the office of a bishop. Just think about this. Does that mean we can't desire it if they have something in their past years ago that maybe even no one knows about? And the answer is no. It's dealing with a one-woman man. And um, it's just because it's dealing with what a man is right now. So is this man married? And if he is, then is his focus on 
his wife. By the way, it also then clears up this, this question about, can a, does a man have to be married? No. He doesn't have to be. If he is, he needs to, not, he needs to be faithful to his wife. Um, if, if he isn't, he shouldn't be one that's looking around here and there and having all sorts of relationships. He needs to be focused on what is God's will for my life. And if the Lord provides a wife for me, I'm going to be faithful to her, and I'm going to remain that way. One woman man is the correct way to understand these words. You say, well, why was it translated the husband of, of one wife? It's a good question. Um, it, it, um, it's, it's a good question that begs us to ask, to, to ask well, where, where did they get it from? There is no support in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that demands one way or the other. Now, let me tell you another reason why I believe it has to be one woman man. And some people don't grasp this. But when you look at this list of qualifications, look at some of these things. All right, he needs to be, look in verse 8, sober. Uh, he needs to be holy. He needs to be temperate. He can't be, verse 7, soon angry, given to wine. Can't be a striker, not given to fil filthy lucre. All right, um, not, not self-willed. All right, these things in the list of qualifications, let me ask you, he deals with a lot of areas of life, doesn't he? Deals with a guy's temper, deals with uh, uh, self-control, deals with all sorts of areas of life. What is it dealt with in this passage that you would expect to be dealt with? Fornication and adultery aren't mentioned at all. Why not? Seriously. Do you think it's more important that a pastor hasn't been a drinker than that he hasn't been an adulterer? All right, so why isn't adultery and why isn't fornication in this passage? You know why? Because I'm convinced that it's dealt with in one woman man. And his mind, and this deals with pornography, it deals with, with, with all sorts of things, even outside of the, the bonds of marriage, that he is, that he is focused on, uh, if he has a wife, that wife. And if he doesn't, that he's not looking everywhere, and that he is not looking at the things and doing things that he shouldn't be doing and focusing on and, uh, and involved in the matter of fornication in any way, shape, or form. See, one woman man, when we interpret it that way, deals with all matters of, if you would, sexual improprieties. Where it's not dealt with. And you would think, seriously, that no one would ever say, well, okay, this man's okay. I know he's, I know he's been running around and he's been doing this and been doing that. But you know, the Bible doesn't say anywhere about a, a, a pastor that he can't be that way. Well, it does. One woman man, man deals with that situation. Deals with it. Deals with, uh, and even deals with to some extent the divorce and remarriage issue. It de deals with. Uh, it, it deals with physical relationships outside of marriage. It deals with uh, relationships with others, other ones that are other than his wife. A one woman man deals with that thing. It addresses the issue of moral purity, which is left unsaid, even though God deals with all sorts of other things in this list. And, and to me, when I come to this passage, 
I want to give it a right interpretation. I have to give it the interpretation, one woman, man, because then it opens up this idea that a man is to be morally pure, whether he's married or not. And, um, and it includes all those areas of impropriety in the matter of um, uh, physical, moral matters. So one woman, man, is the proper interpretation. It's the proper understanding. You say, Pastor, you are not preaching what fundamentalists preach. Um, it's very rare you ever hear me do that. But I want to be true to the word, and I need to be true to the word. And it's important that we understand what God has said. And, um, and so that is, uh, that, is, that is an acceptable interpretation according to the language. It's an acceptable interpretation according to the context itself. In fact, the context suggests that it has to be dealing with a one-woman man. You see, I told you we wouldn't get far. So let's just mention the third one, and then we're going to pick up in verse 7 next time. Children right. Children that are right. The word riot uh, comes from an interesting word. It comes from a form of the word soto, and the word soto means saved. It's interesting. It carries the idea, though, of being whole. Uh, it says, the idea is that children that are living to excesses, they're wild, they're uncontrolled. Children that are controlled by their flesh is what he's talking about here. Not, again, immoral, although that would be part of it. A, a pastor who has children in his home that are living immorally and doing things that are, that are wrong immorally would certainly be included in a riot. But someone whose life is not whole, they're just out of control. And if a pastor doesn't have his kids in control, where does that deal with? It deals with the home. And they're in and under the pastor's authority. Those children have to be right. Um, if a man will tolerate children who are living in excesses, and, and let me say this, there are some pastors whose kids are wild and uncontrolled, and there are some deacons whose children are wild and uncontrolled. And, um, and, and quite honestly, we need to look at that and say, is there a problem here? And what do we need to do about it? If a man doesn't know to keep his children in order, how can he keep the church in order? Good question. So you look at it in verse uh, verse 6, having faithful children not accused of riot or, and the word unruly means insubordinate or unsubdued. They need to be subordinate while they're in the home. I don't know what to do with these kids. They won't listen to me. You don't want to hear those words from your pastor. Um, by the way, you don't want to hear those words from anyone at church either. And, uh, and if you're saying that, <laughs> um, you're, you're acting like just like my wife. You're acting just like my husband, you know. All right, if, if, uh, if, if you're saying that, then, um, then there's, you, you, you need some help in your home, and I want to encourage you to get it. Because ch your children are to be right. And, it, again, make a mental note. It's what children are in his home right now, not what they did after leaving the home. Um, when a, a young man supports themselves, they're no longer in that subordination role. So children that are right, and then we're going to begin looking at verse 7 and 8 next time, and 
yes, we will get through, hopefully, a good portion of those next time we have opportunity. But we dealt with controversy today. Uh, really shouldn't be, but we, we tried to be true to the word, and I hope those things will help you to understand what God expects and what God wants from the pastor. And uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it does help us. And that if we carefully and rightly divide the word of truth, we'll have answers for life and for what ought be. And I thank you that we can come to the word and we can look carefully at it. And we can uh, make decisions about what, uh, what we ought do because the word of God is true. Help us to be true to it, live according to it. And I pray that you would um, help us, help, help me as a pastor to be what I ought. I pray that you would uh, help us as a people to understand what you expect. And always to remember that if a pastor is to come from the congregation, then God's people need to be this way. And may we all strive to have these qualities in our life. May, may men be one woman men in our church, one woman men. And may ladies be faithful and true to their, uh, to their mate and um, and we'll thank you, Lord God, for how you'll help us to do what we ought for the glory of God and live in a right way to, to honor your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you as you live right. Praise God.